This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and the work of civil society. Uh, I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis, and this is episode 35, in which we're looking at the theme of religion. Um, So I should say a couple of things first about this. Um, First one is that this is a big and obvious topic that you, some of you might be surprised we haven't covered before now. Um, and if I'm entirely honest, we've thought about it quite a few times, but slightly sort of backed away because we couldn't think of the, the right way to approach it. And also, you know, it's not an uncontroversial topic in a lot of ways. People have very strong views about faith, so we wanted to make sure that we were doing it right. And I'm hopeful that I've found a way to manage to address some interesting uh, topics around faith and philanthropy uh, without causing anybody any offence. Um, the second thing to say, just to give you a peek behind the curtain somewhat, is that this is actually the second time that I'm recording this episode because I've recorded it once this morning already, the entire episode, and when I came to edit it I realised I had microphone issues and the audio wasn't really salvageable. So, if this is uh, good, that's testament to my own professionalism in terms of podcasting. Uh, and if it isn't, then we can always just claim that that Mystery Lost episode was a masterpiece anyway, so that will be fine. I think the other thing I just wanted to say up front about this topic um, is, I think it's important to say in a way that I'm not myself religious or a person of faith. Um, but the thing that's really interesting to me about this subject and the kind of interplay of philanthropy and religion and faith is that over the last decade working in this area, um, I've become very aware of how important religion is to philanthropy in terms of kind of shaping individual approaches to it, but also at a systemic level. Um, that's sort of through the research that, that I've done, but also just through my experience of talking to philanthropists and people who work in charities um, it's obvious to me how many of them are, to a greater or lesser extent, kind of informed by faith in, in various different ways. Although I think it's important to say there are plenty of people like me who uh, don't have religious faith, but also I think are kind of minded to try and do good for others. So it's not a necessary condition. Um, so the first thing that I wanted to look at was the idea of kind of faith in the broadest possible sense and religious belief uh, and the way that that affects individual decisions to give. So kind of not thinking about any specific faith or religious doctrine. Um, and the first way in which I think it's kind of interesting to note that it might have an impact is one that's sort of subconscious or unconscious. So um, some of the evidence from uh, psychological experiments or kind of behavioural experiments shows that if you talk to people about concepts of God and religious concepts of a sort of omniscient being, they are more likely to give to charity. Um, and this sort of ties into some of the stuff we've mentioned on the podcast before about the way in which being made aware of the concept of other people kind of watching you 
um, stimulates the the kind of peer effects of of uh, philanthropy, and it's a very important thing in sort of driving giving is people's sense of being watched or judged by others. And absent another actual human being in the room, if you can get people to think about the idea that there might be some sort of supernatural being um, that is also watching, then that kind of has a, a similar effect. Um, then moving away from that, I think there are sort of much more pragmatic ways in which um, faith plays an obvious role in kind of guiding philanthropy. So one is the pragmatic one that places of worship, um, churches, temples, synagogues and so on, are just places in which people from diverse walks of life come together around a kind of shared set of interests and values. Um, and that has a kind of determinate impact on the the role they play in terms of people's charitable giving in a number of ways. I mean, one is just that they are more likely to make people aware of the sort of wider needs of the community and society around them because they're coming into contact with people from different walks of life or they are hearing through you know, the lessons and the readings and the teachings um, about problems in society or in their local community. And that's a very important factor because there's a lot of evidence to show that the more that people are kind of aware of how the other half lives or the problems that other people face, they are empathetic and therefore more likely to give or to feel prompted to give to charity. Um, and there's evidence that people who live in kind of very um, economically homogeneous communities of wealthy people are much less likely to give than wealthy people who live in much more economically diverse communities. Um, the other practical way in which places of worship play an important role is that another big factor determining giving is simply being asked um, and churches and temples and other places are a very good place um, to get asked to give money whether that is money in the form of collections to the church or temple itself or whether they are kind of wider collections for other causes uh, in the local area or internationally or whether it is people within the, c the congregation or the community asking other people in all of those different ways it sort of provides an appropriate place for people to make that ask which is often very important in initiating giving um, and then I think there's also a kind of deeper sociological sense in which places of worship um, and kind of religious communities play a role, um, which is that a shared sense of religious identity is a very important factor often in kind of um, determining communities of interest or communities of purpose, either within a geography or kind of more broadly. Um, and, you know, historically that's been very apparent. So, uh, minority sects in the Protestant faith, for instance, kind of dissenting um, uh, voices like the Quakers um, or the other kind of Presbyterians and Methodists and others um, had their own very strong kind of senses of community and, and sets of shared uh, views and, and purposes. And that was reflected also in very strong traditions of uh, charitable giving. Uh, the same is true of the Jewish community, both in the UK historically and in the modern day and, and elsewhere. Um, there's a very strong tradition of philanthropy within the Jewish faith and obviously a very strong sense of shared identity um, based around the synagogue um, and the local Jewish community. And I think, again, that often uh, kind of plays into, um, into the kind of impulse to, to give to charity or to volunteer. 
Um, and one way in which you see that playing out sometimes in practical terms is around um, people uh, forming giving circles. So these are kind of loose or sometimes more formalized groupings of people who come together to kind of pool their money perhaps but also to make joint decisions about where to give to charity and often those are people who share a faith or might share a geographic location um, and they might be giving to specific causes that also link to that in some way and that they might be giving to people um, of the same faith in other countries or diaspora communities or something like that. But they are a very kind of powerful model that um, you see a lot in, in various different places across the world. Um, and the other obvious way in which religion plays a big role in driving charitable giving and philanthropy is that religious teaching on charity and philanthropy is a big part of a lot of faith. So um, to take an example from Christianity, the the kind of the teaching on the purpose of charity and how that fits within society um, is, I think, as we've discussed on the podcast before, one of the key things that really led to the emergence of modern philanthropy. So at the end of the Reformation in the late um, 1500s, the um, the schism between uh, the Protestant Church and the Catholic Church in England when Henry VIII uh, decided to split from from the Church of Rome um, led to a, a massive upheaval that kind of shaped most of Western history for the next few hundred years. Um, and one of the things that resulted in that was a significant shift in the way in which philanthropy was thought about. So in the medieval Catholic sense, it was very much about almsgiving. And the idea was that the purpose of charitable giving was to secure the donor's immortal soul and secure their passage to heaven. So it was all about the the impact on the donor. Um, and there wasn't really much thought about kind of what was achieved with the money or the, the beneficiary of it. They were just there to provide something that the donor could give to. And the shift then under Protestant teaching was that they didn't share any of the same views about the passage to heaven and the um, notions of kind of absolution or the uh, purchase of indulgences and those kinds of things. It was a very big difference of opinion between uh, between Protestantism and Catholicism. Um, and as such, um, Protestant teaching said very much more that it was about what was achieved with the giving during the donor's lifetime that was important. So it, it paved the way for a more secular understanding of philanthropy that was less about the donor and their immortal soul and more about what was achieved with the money during their life. Um, and then I think there are also kind of wider teachings um, from religion that are relevant because they shape the way in which philanthropy is practised. Um, particularly one can think about teachings on poverty so again um, there have been various different views of poverty within Christianity over the years and a sort of big distinction between a view of poverty that sees it as part of the natural order or part of God's plan um, something which is predetermined and can't be changed and as such isn't really a problem to be addressed it's just something one should deal with the, the symptoms of through almsgiving or charity or a conception that sees it as a social issue um, that can be addressed and therefore something that is an appropriate focus of philanthropy. Um, and a kind of related uh, distinction that's been very important for a lot of charity, which is again often based in religious thinking, is the distinction between the deserving and the undeserving poor. The idea being that the former are people who are sort of poor through no fault of their own, um, whereas the latter are people who 
for some reason, either through their own moral failing or something they've done in a past life, perhaps, um, are sort of being punished through their poverty. And this has had a you know kind of big impact right up to the modern day in terms of people's approaches to who is and isn't a worthy recipient of charity and how one should kind of address those different forms of poverty. Um, the other way in which charity um, and religion uh, kind of obviously interact is that a lot of religions have specific teachings about the need to give to charity. So again, within Christianity, many different forms of Christianity have notions of things like tithing, where you are supposed to give 10% of your uh, earnings to charity, um, either through the church or in, in the modern context, perhaps just to, to charity sort of separate from the church. Um, and then in other religions, so in Judaism, um, there's the notion of tzedakah, which um, is both an obligation to give and also a set of principles about how one should give. And there are kind of um, Maimonides, who was the Jewish scholar who kind of outlined these um, back in the 14th century, possibly, um, outlined these eight levels of uh, tzedakah and which kind of increasingly uh, worthy forms of giving or approaches to philanthropy. And the interesting thing about that is the highest possible form of giving uh, within tzedakah then is one where there is no expectation of return on the part of the donor and no desire to get thanks for the gift. Um, and this has a kind of tangible impact in the real world in that it dictates that Jewish donors particularly uh, often take a, an approach to giving, which means they are much more keen to remain anonymous or kind of relatively low profile because it actively kind of lessens the value of the philanthropy if you are seen to be trying to get a lot of profile out of it. So it's sort of interesting way in which very, very old religious teaching has a real world impact today. Um, and then the other big one that, that is definitely worth mentioning is um, zakat within uh, Islam, which is, again, um, both a kind of obligation to give linked to a particular time of the year in, in this uh, instance, and also um, some sort of guidance on what are the, the causes one should give to and the ways in which one should give. Uh, and that plays out in, in lots of different ways. I mean, in some countries where uh, Islam is the majority religion, the government takes responsibility for administering zakat. So it's essentially almost a kind of quasi-tax. Whereas in other countries um, where it's much less formal or, or at least happens through... Um, through the kind of religious uh, infrastructure um, uh, of, of the Muslim faith and is then kind of passed um, either kind of within the local community or often internationally. Um, and and actually the amounts of money involved are huge, which is why there's been quite a lot of focus in international development and aid over the last few years in trying to understand zakat and how it relates to kind of traditional aid spending and donations and whether there is any sort of way of harnessing some of the money uh, that comes through zakat obligations to try and address aid issues which is you know definitely worth looking into um, I will probably say no more at that point because I'm definitely in danger of getting to the kind of limits of my knowledge and I really, I really don't want to kind of put my foot in it but I'd be you know it's definitely an issue I'd be interested to come back to in a subsequent episode hopefully when I could perhaps talk to somebody who certainly knows more than I do about that. Um, okay, in the next section, I just want to go on to sort of move away from generalised faith and, and how it re relates to the individual to look more at organised religious structures and the impact they've had on shaping philanthropy. So stay tuned for that. <music>
Okay, so we are back. Um, as I said in, in just before the break, what I want to do here is have a bit of a think about kind of organised religion and the way in which that has interacted with and shaped philanthropy and approaches to charity over the years. Um, I should apologise up front again that I'm going to be focusing largely on, on Christianity and the UK context here, um, but that's primarily just because I know most about that as a result of the research I did a few years ago for the book I wrote about the history of philanthropy uh, in the UK, um, and you know, I, there are certainly kind of similar stories to be told about other other countries' contexts and the role that religions played in shaping their approach to charity and civil society. Um, so I think the you know the starting point in terms of uh, highlighting the importance of religion in shaping approaches to charity is to think about charity law, um, and where the best place to start there is to think about the 1601 Statute of Charitable Uses, um, which is generally taken as a kind of first place where uh, anything like uh, a kind of attempted definition of what counted as a charitable purpose was given. Um, in actual fact, it was the, the the preface to the 1601 statute rather than the, the actual legislation itself that did this. Essentially, they kind of put an explanatory note in outlining the sorts of things um, to which the law was supposed to apply. And in the course of doing this, uh, even though it wasn't meant to be a full definition of charity, they kind of informally outlined um, what was or wasn't to count as a charitable purpose. Um but the interesting thing is, is that religious purposes weren't included in that original statute, and it's worth kind of thinking why that might have been. Now, some people um, have claimed that this is evidence of a sort of major secular turn in philanthropy. Certainly W.K. Jordan, who was one of the main scholars um, of kind of philanthropy in England, in the 20th century uh, made a pretty strong claim that this was the case, although a lot of people have subsequently taken issue with it. Um, I think on on my reading from, from what I have seen of the evidence, I think the most likely explanation is that it was a kind of piece of real politic on the part of the government to leave out religious causes because including them just would have made their lives more difficult. Um Particularly at that point, if you think about the context, it's shortly after the Reformation um, when Henry VIII had split away from the Catholic Church uh, and had also then gone through uh, the dissolution of the monasteries and kind of taking assets from uh, the Catholic Church um, for for the state. Uh, and in order to do that, the, the state had had to reclassify a lot of existing Catholic causes as superstitious uh, in order to make their assets legally forfeit. So the question at that point of what did or didn't count as an appropriate religious cause was incredibly controversial. Um, and so it sort of made sense to leave it out of uh, this question of defining charity, um, which is not to say that religious causes were just sort of totally left alone. They were regulated and decisions were made about them, but just through a different system for the next few hundred years. Um, and then glossing over some, well, quite a lot of detail, actually. But um, if we whiz forward to 1891, um, we have then a, a hugely important legal case called the Pemsel case. Now, Pemsel himself was the treasurer of um, a particular sect of Protestantism, the Moravian Church. Um, and he brought a case against the commissioners for the special purposes of income tax, on the basis that um, he wanted to be able to claim back the income tax that he felt his church had wrongly paid because he thought they should be exempt. 
Um, and anyone who's listened to this podcast before will know the question of whether or not donations are subject to income tax um, for a very long time was sort of uh, a very big grey area and a lot of it was done on a kind of nod and a wink and a handshake. Um, but Pemsel wasn't having any of that and he wanted to have kind of legal clarity about it. So they, they took the issue to court. Um, now, this went all the way up through through the law courts, right to the House of Lords, and Pemsel case was eventually upheld, which is a very important moment in the eventual kind of introduction of formalised tax relief for donations. Um, but the bit that's relevant for what we're talking about today is that in uh, in summing up and giving the verdict on this case, one of the Lords, Lord McNaughton, um, made a very famous statement about um, the four heads of charity, as he called them, um, which have essentially sort of set the parameters for charity law in the UK and, by extension, lots of other places that have common law around the world uh, ever since. Uh, and just to, to give you um, a quote from that, that uh, ruling, he said, Charity in its legal sense comprises four principal divisions, trusts for the relief of poverty, trusts for the advancement of education, trusts for the advancement of religion, and trusts for other purposes beneficial to the community, not falling under any of the preceding heads. So you can see that last one is a bit of a catch-all <laughs> to make sure that you can allow anything you've forgotten about in the other, the other three. Um, but the important thing is one of those other three is now religion. So religious causes have become part of the kind of landscape and fabric of, of uh, registered charity in the UK. Um, I was thinking the situation is a bit different in somewhere like the US where they don't have the sort of same registered legal form as separate from the tax exempt status. So there, um, religious organisations are able to get the 501c3 designation, which is essentially the kind of public charity tax designation. But the range of things that are allowed to get that designation is much broader than the range of things that would count as a charity in the UK. So, for instance, closed congregations um, or religious organisations that um, don't uh, allow uh, sort of general public in, so there's no argument of kind of wider public benefit, are allowed to have that sort of designation. Um, so, whereas in the UK, part of charity law is the public benefit test, so an organisation has to be able to show a demonstrable public benefit. Um, and this is kind of interesting when it comes to comparisons between the level of generosity in the UK and the US, because it's always worth flagging up the fact, um, as we'll see in a moment, that uh, religious giving plays a very large part in the kind of overall picture of giving in the US. And a lot of the things that that are in receipt of that money wouldn't actually count as charities in the UK. That being said, on a slight side note, even if you strip out religious giving on both sides, the US is still fairly significantly uh, more generous. So it's it's not as simple as saying that that explains the whole thing. It just kind of makes the picture a bit less clear cut. OK, um, bring that section to a close. Um, and then in the next section, um, I just want to come on to give a bit of uh, a sense of what role religion is playing with regard to philanthropy and civil society today and kind of what some of the questions for the future might be. Now stay tuned. Okay, so yeah, we saw in the last section um, the some idea of the role that organised religion has played in kind of 
shaping philanthropy and civil society at a macro level over the last hundreds of years. Um, But it still plays a huge role today. So, for instance, here in the UK, religious causes are actually still um, the the area that gets the highest proportion of donations by value. So 19% of the total uh, amount by value of donations in the UK goes to religion, as shown by CAF's UK Giving um, survey that we do every year. Um, there's a bit of an interesting distinction, which is that if you look at proportion of people giving to things, so kind of incidents of giving, religion comes much lower down. Um, and actually, pe- the incidence of giving is much higher for things like medical research, children's charities and hospitals. But the overall value, religion, is by far the biggest. And what that shows is that fewer people are giving to religious causes, but the mean value of those donations is much higher. So those people who are giving are giving uh, quite significantly bigger amounts. Um, and then in the US, as as I kind of hinted at the end of the last section, um, religious causes play an even bigger role. So they account for roughly a third of all individual giving in the country. Um Exactly uh, in 2018, according to the um, Giving USA report that they do every year, I think it was 31% of all donations, which uh, equates to $127 billion. So it's it's a lot of money. Um, and as we've said, you know, actually the differences in what counts as, a, as an acceptable charitable religious institution means that the two contexts are quite different. Um, another interesting thing, sort of moving away from the UK and the US, is... is Obviously, we've talked about the way in which a lot of churches have specific teachings about the fact that you should give to the poor, perhaps via the church. Um, But a lot of religions also have teachings about giving to maintain and fund the church itself or people who want to lead a religious life. Um, So one thing we notice every year in the World Giving Index that CAF does, and we've done for the last 10 years or so, is there there are a few countries that come much higher than you might expect on face value, um, certainly when it comes to the incidence of giving money. So we were very surprised in the early years of doing the survey um, that Myanmar, Burma, um, used to consistently come extremely high, as did Thailand. Um, and when we looked into this and spoke to some experts, it became clear that one of the big explanatory factors was the particular type of Buddhism they have in those countries. Um, Theravada Buddhism has a custom called Sangadana, which is where people essentially have an obligation to give to uh, people who want to lead a monastic life. So people who want to be monks um, who don't then need to kind of um, care for their own earthly needs because people are funding it through donations um, and that's sort of explained why when you ask people in a survey whether they've given to charity in the last month uh, a very high proportion of them will say yes um, interestingly I kind of became aware quite recently that um, in the last year or so uh, there's been quite a big controversy in Thailand in particular um, where the government has clamped down pretty heavily and introduced new legislation I believe to try and um, limit the the practice of Sangadana due to concerns about kind of endemic corruption within um, the Buddhist temples in that country. So it will be interesting to see whether that has an impact on that in the longer term. Um, There are also countries, um, I think we've mentioned on the podcast before, where they have a percentage philanthropy model. Um, This is where 
there people are allowed to uh, hypothecate a small percentage of their tax as taxed by the government usually about one or two percent and historically this came about usually in countries that had um uh, were pri- primarily catholic because at the point where the income tax was introduced the catholic church was quite keen to make sure that that didn't impact on uh, donations that kept it going um so in negotiation with the government um they ensured that a small proportion of that tax went directly to the church now over time that evolved into in in a lot of places into a sort of broader um percentage that could go to charity not necessarily through the church but also my understanding is in a few of those places italy and spain perhaps um, there are percentage philanthropy uh, models where some of that money, or all of it indeed, can still go to funding the church. Um, there are also, um, just harking back to the very first episode of this podcast, ways in which um, religion uh, and the kind of uh, issues about um, particular kind of approaches to religion impact on charity law much more broadly. Um, so one example in the US is around the, the Johnson Amendment, which uh, is a piece of um, the US tax code uh, introduced by Lyndon B. Johnson when he was a senator that essentially outlaws 501c3, so kind of not tax-exempt non-profit organizations, from uh, campaigning for or against elected um, the election of people to public office. Um, the point being to try and kind of keep money from that sector out of the electoral system. Um, and now a lot of evangelical churches in the US have for a long time um, been opposed to this and wanted to see it overturned um, because they would like to be able to use their money to fund candidates that share their views on things like um, abortion and other kind of uh, issues that are very close to the hearts of certain evangelical groups um and one of the things that donald trump uh, said early on in his presidency was that he was going to overturn this johnson amendment now that is of quite a lot of concern to the wider non-profit sector in the u.s because the concern is that if you um get rid of those rules you essentially kind of declare open season on dark money flooding into the traditional non-profit sector over there which could have a really corrosive effect on people's trust um, in in non-profits um, because people will use that uh, ability that they already use to fund things like super PACs well it would be even more tax advantage to be able to put the same money through a 501c3 organization in order to fund um, campaigns to try and get people elected or not elected so um, i don't think that change has happened yet but it's definitely something that remains a concern in the u.s um, and then i think in terms of the the way in which religion still kind of informs large parts of the philanthropy world one thing that that's really worth noting is the uh, relationship between international development and religion um, I mean historically the roots of a lot of international development and aid work are in kind of missionary movements and missionary churches um, uh, and you know whilst some of that is less avert nowadays um, than perhaps it was a lot of organizations well-known organizations operating in that space still do have uh, somewhere in their their statutes uh, a kind of evangelical mission or a kind of mission to promote 
religious beliefs, even if that is very much in the background now. But you know, organizations like World Vision or Tear Fund um, obviously have a Christian mission, uh, and then Islamic Relief and others have um, a mission to promote Islam. Um, and the the interesting thing I was talking to somebody about this the other day is in terms of the pragmatics of getting money to where it is needed in in terms of aid and development even if you yourself as a donor are not religious, there is a pretty strong argument that it makes sense to give money to those religious organisations because they are the ones who are most likely to be able to tap into the on-the-ground networks within lots of areas of the world where religion and the church or the temple is the kind of infrastructure for delivering aid and for kind of managing and moving money around. And if you come in as a secular organization that doesn't necessarily find it as easy to make those links it's actually going to be much more difficult for you to be effective on the ground which i thought was you know a really interesting point that i hadn't heard of um i guess the other thing to say is that you know that question of religious organizations doing secular work um isn't just one that we see in an international context obviously you know, another large part of the ongoing role of sort of churches and religious organisations and temples and faith groups is simply in all of the work they do in addressing wider social issues and welfare problems. So lots of these places um, do things like provide food banks or homeless shelters. And they're also often the focal point for a lot of kind of wider community activity and, and simply offering space for other civil society and voluntary groups to be able to operate. So they do play a kind of really important background infrastructure role. Um, I think with a view to the future, you know, just a couple of thoughts that I had really um, more questions than anything. One is about what the what the sort of change in levels of religious belief might mean um and the evidence on this is is somewhat mixed you know there's a lot of evidence showing kind of declines in the west in terms of church attendance uh, and potentially kind of people self-identifying as religious but then equally there's a lot of evidence in some areas that just the 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 center of power or the balance of of that belief or within particular churches is shifting away from its traditional center so in the Anglican Church, for instance, although the Archbishop of Canterbury is still the head of that, a lot of the power, from what I understand, is where the vast majority of the modern congregations is, and that's often in kind of African countries. And it's just interesting to me to think through whether that links into that, that kind of question that's there in the wider aid and development world about trying to shift away from a model where you have kind of Western organisations delivering aid to the developing world and deciding for it, you know, how to meet its needs um, to a model where you kind of shift the power over to the developing world and allow them to solve their own problems. Uh, and then I guess, you know, kind of more bleakly, the reality is that religious persecution in its various forms is one of the kind of major uh, things that a lot of aid and, and uh, development organizations and also sort of domestic civil society organizations have to deal with um, and I think you know that is something that will continue into the future and and if anything I think we are sort of seeing that get worse as as we're seeing kind of increased social division uh, and the impact of technology um, in, in terms of kind of 
um, uh, inciting hatred uh, online and things like that. So, I mean, all the issues around Facebook and the role that they've played in Myanmar around the Rohingya crisis, um, you know, I think the the issue of religious persecution is, is going to get worse, if not before it gets better, sadly. Um, and that is something that, you know, civil society will kind of have to pay heed to and, and inevitably play a role in addressing. Okay, so I think with that unbelievable cans around the houses, hopefully I've got to the end of that without mortally offending anybody and at least interesting a few of you. Um, I'll put some links to relevant stuff in the show notes um, so you can follow up on that. If you're kind of interested more broadly in the work we do around philanthropy and civil society, check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Um, if you've got thoughts on topics we could cover on the podcast or people I could talk to for future episodes, uh, drop me a line at givingthought at cafonline.org. Uh, follow me on Twitter at rodri underscore h underscore davis, where I bang on about all this kind of stuff all the time. Um, other than that, just like, subscribe, tell all your friends about the podcast, and I'll see you next time. Bye!